Welcome to Ask the Experts. This is a brief, informative, and lively discussion with experts in type 1 diabetes and related interdisciplinary research. We're recording this event. We're going to post it on our Sugar Science YouTube channel shortly after the presentation. And if you have questions for our guests, two guests today, please feel free to enter them in the chat or raise your hand at the end of the presentation. So today we have two guests. We're very lucky to have Dr. Jennifer Wang. Uh, she's a renowned physician scientist in the field of type one diabetes and viral immunology at UMass Chan Medical School and UMass Memorial Health in Worcester, Mass. She's committed to understanding innate immune response to viral infection and how innate immunity contributes to the etiology and pathogenesis of type one diabetes. And she's made a huge contribution to the field of infectious diseases and immunology. She has more than 60 peer reviewed publications in many high impact journals, Cell, any uh, New England Journal of Medicine, Nature Communications. So welcome, um, Dr. Wang. And Dr. Um, we also have Dr. Desio Azirik, MD, PhD. He's presently a full professor and director for the Laboratory for Experimental Medicine and Center for Diabetes at University Libre de Bruxelles in Brussels, Belgium. He's originally from Brazil. He's had a long and very illustrative career in the field of type one diabetes. He spanned physicians at UBC, Uppsala University, and recently at Indiana University. He has uh, some, a brand new couple of papers that are really interesting and, and we can't wait to hear about them today. I'm particularly interested uh, to hear a little bit of taste from the, integrate, the paper for in uh, Nature Communications and Integrated Multiomics Approach identifies the landscape of interferon alpha mediated responses of human pancreatic beta cells. I hope he's gonna just touch on that. And today really the big sort of the the discussion is really gonna center around the role of viruses in the etiology of autoimmune diseases, specifically type one diabetes and the ultimate target uh, beta cells, pancreatic beta cells. So welcome uh, Dr. Zizirik and Dr. Wang. And um, I wondered if you could just tell us a little bit about yourselves, just first Dr. Wang, if you'd like to just sort of go first and talk a little bit about sort of your, your background. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, I started out as a clinician and in infectious diseases, really driven by uh, HIV care, then uh, progressed to research-based uh, career with a focus on innate immunity and various pathogens, eventually settling in on viruses, uh, including Coxsackie virus, influenza, and others. And so my interests in uh, autoimmunity and type 1 diabetes were, say, you know, initiated about 10 years ago. And really, uh, with the GWAS findings of uh, RNA sensors being associated with T1D, um, this uh, prompted my interest. And uh, it's such a rich field uh, with immunology, and uh, I find it very exciting. And, uh, and then this past year and a half, uh, I've been you know, focused largely on COVID, both patient treatment and prevention and uh, research uh, in the laboratory. And uh, interesting to reflect on the analogies between autoimmunity and um, COVID. Yeah, for sure. There's gonna be some interesting data coming out of this um, unwanted experiment with COVID. Dr. Zirik, can you give us a thumbnail sketch of your sort of background and intersection with type 1 diabetes? Thank you very much. Well, my background is a little bit similar to Jennifer. I also started my career as a clinician. I was trained as in internal medicine and endocrinology. And I then 
Grover particularly interested in diabetes treatment. And interesting or sad enough, my first research area were long-term complications of diabetes, particularly nephropathy and autonomic neuropathy, which are devastating complications. Uh, so based on this experience, I got the feeling that perhaps we should try to intervene at an earlier stage of the disease before this type of complication appeared. And then I engaged in a very long career, tried to understand the pathogenesis of type 1 diabetes. And I took, uh, when I started, uh, up to uh, five, six years ago, most focus in the field was in the immune system. But I always looked at from the other side. I look at instead of looking at the at the assaulting, let's say the immune system, I look at the victim, the beta cells. And as the years went by, it became clear that there was a very complex relation between the beta cells and the immune system. And most probably there is a dialogue between these two systems that given a particularly genetic background may lead to a misunderstand and eventually evolution from innate immune response to adaptive immune response and autoimmunity. And in this process also in the last three, four, five years, uh, I grow more and more interested in type one interferon. So I really look forward to listen to Jennifer and to start this discussion today. Yeah, that's, I mean, this is a. This is gonna be a great discussion. I'm looking forward to hearing it as well. Let's sort of dive in. I know you both have some slide sets and let's, let's sort of start with uh, Dr. Wang, starting to walk us through a beautiful slide uh, at the beginning. I love this immunofluorescence uh, visual, it's gorgeous. <clears throat> so yeah, take it away. Thank you. So I have about 10 slides. And as I had originally put this together, I realized that, you know, I'm looking at uh, more modeling and um, in animal studies. And I really wanted to show how this complements human uh, uh, samples and our, our current understanding. And so I think the two talks are very complementary. So this first imaging I put up here, uh, this is a rat pancreas in the pre-diabetic stages. And um, the it's RNA scope, RNA in situ hybridization. And you can see in the green here is insulin. And in this case, the uh, yellow is CXCL10 and red is glucagon. And we can look at entire sections by scanning and zooming in um, and probing numerous different targets. So, so you know the approaches uh, that we use in our models is this combination of RNA in situ hybridization and uh, single cell RNA seq. And the fundamental questions revolve around what are the innate immune signals that uh, can be uh, in the early phases of diabetes, uh, type one diabetes that lead to recruitment of the adaptive side and uh, the onset of disease. And I'll describe the model. And again, you know, the importance is how this, how well this may correlate with human type one diabetes. Many of you have seen the 
um, this list of genes with um, risk genes associated with T1D, certainly HLA, but also um, in the last uh, 10, 15 years, a number of other genes have been identified largely through GWAS. And these include uh, innate immune sensors such as IFIH1, which detects double-stranded RNA, uh, also um, other uh, genes important in interferon signaling and regulation. And this, I, I put up a couple of different examples of how this uh, is similarly seen in uh, human disease, these type one interferon signatures. So this is a growing area and um, my interest is in seeing using a rat model of T1D to further probe the innate immune responses and whether these could be targeted towards um, type 1 diabetes prevention. So uh, there is a model which has been highly used at my institution, the uh, LU1W1R rat as well as BBDR rat. They're very similar in uh, in their findings, um, they are both associated with MHC class two, and uh, these are inbred rats. Uh, there is a juvenile onset, which parallels somewhat with human type one diabetes. There is no sex bi bias with preference over males or females, unlike other models such as in the mouse. And the insulitis that's seen on pathology is similar to that in human pathology. So these are all advantages we can, because these are animals um, that are inbred, we can sample multiple animals over time and collect different specimens, which as you know, is a challenge in human uh, studies. So uh, the, my interest again was also uh, prompted by uh, that this is a virus induced diabetes model. And, uh, intrigued me, how is this happening? And the particular virus is a rat parvovirus. And uh, interestingly, it doesn't have to, th this model can uh, develop even in the absence of virus, one can add a double-stranded RNA mimetic to induce diabetes. So uh, there's something about the innate signaling uh, rather than the infection per se. So we can look at this over time. And my focus has been to look at these early times in the pre-disease uh, onset to really look at the development. And so we then used a um, CRISPR-based uh, targeting to uh, examine the question, you know, what is the role of the IFNAR receptor in, in, in contributing to autoimmune diabetes in this model? So we made the knockout and we found that in this particular, this was published uh, four years ago, if we trigger the type 1 diabetes with multiple injections of poly-IC, then in a wild type animal, LU1W1R rat, there's nearly 100% diabetes. And then in the, press, in the knockout where there's um, no functional IFNAR, then there's a significant degree of protection, although it's not 100%. There is still some breakthrough. And in follow-up, you know, we had looked at some uh, immunohistology in that first paper, uh, but 
to really understand even uh, the earlier immune events, we focused on day five spleen um, as a source of immune cells. And also uh, because this is a site, we use the KRB infection model for these studies I'm about to show. And uh, the virus actually goes to the spleen at high uh, concentrations and replicates. And uh, so presumably there's a lot of viral intermediates of replication triggering innate immunity. And so there's a balance hypothesis, which uh, has been proposed where there needs to be an appropriate balance between T effectors and T regulatory cells. And it's been uh, described that the virus you know, sets off this balance and leads to onset of diabetes. And in the past, there has been a loss of Tregs and increase in CD8 cytotoxic T cells. When we examined our model uh, and we did a combination of flow cytometry, uh, bulk RNA sequencing and single cell RNA sequencing, we uh, found this to be the case as well. Uh, we did see an increase in NK cells in, in this model. And then when we looked at the IFNAR-1 deficient animals and challenged them with the virus, there was a restoration of this balance and protection against diabetes. And uh, appropriately, we see a decrease in interferon-stimulated genes. Uh, we also see a increase in macrophage MHC2 expression. So there, this is an example of what we can learn from the RAP model. And then more recently, we have been focusing on uh, examining the pancreas in the event of the pre-diabetic uh, time course. So here's, uh, we, we can isolate islets from the rat pancreas and dissociate and perform, in this case, 10X sequencing. And we see the appropriate distribution of cells and what we've done is taken uh, rat samples over time course to see the development of signatures uh, of any immunity in the cell populations. And just as a highlight, we can focus on the beta cells here. They're all highly expressing insulin transcripts. And uh, what we see, the bottom line is that um, there's a strong innate immune signature in a subpopulation of cells. And um, this signature, we're in the process of validating this through various methods, but uh, heavily uh, we see this CXCL10 as I showed on the first pathology slide. So um, our current understanding is how, uh, you know, why is this only a certain number of beta cells, you know, the distribution over islets across the whole pancreas, and then um, how does it relate to immune cell recruitment? And we can look at this by sequencing, where we see this, this type 1 interferon-based signature uh, increasing over time in the pre-insulitis period, and then we see a recruitment or an increase in the total number of T cells from our sequencing data and also an increase in macrophages and using immunostaining and RNA in situ hybridization, we can see that the, these quote unquote hot uh, islets, hot beta cells are indeed uh, recruiting the immune cells. So 
you know, just in summary, this is our inducible rat model, which we can, you know, introduce knockouts to try to understand important host factors in the development of autoimmune diabetes and look at this time course of development and potentially identify pathways that we can target through therapeutics. And um, this, I'll show you the next slide, what kind of drugs do we currently have available that could be used for modulating the host immune response uh, in somebody say who's at high risk. And Monica brought up, you know, that uh, anaphrolimab has been recently FDA approved for treatment of SLE. And there are other, um, this is specifically uh, targeting human uh, IFNAR. And if somebody, a candidate has moderate to severe lupus, um, they received over a year monthly administration in this particular study that there was an overall reduction in disease severity. There were anticipated side effects, although none of them were severe, and there was a significant increase in the number of viral infections as expected, um, mostly upper respiratory, bronchitis, nasopharyngitis, and also uh, reactivation of herpes simplex virus, and that was significant. So this is from DCO's uh, recent publication in diabetes, and I thought this was a good opportunity to highlight the different druggable targets. So IFNAR is here, and then certainly JAK1 inhibitors, uh, such as baricitinib. These are things that we use in COVID and uh, in the later stages uh, to try to blunt the overall immune response and the hyperinflammatory syndrome. And um, this, you know, could be a potential target. And then I, I'm going to hand it over to him because, you know, there are multiple downstream pathways and he'll talk about uh, human, human data in these pathways. That's fantastic. I mean, it really just goes to show that the, the rat is still a very viable and useful model system for exploration. Thank you so much. Okay, so now we're diving into the human beta cells. And this, this recent, I think he's going to talk a little bit, Dr. Zurich is going to talk a little bit about this paper that you just referenced, and I'm looking forward to hearing that too. Thank you very much, and thank you very much, and I think you situated very well the, the uh, problem, so I don't need a very detailed introduction. So, uh, as Jennifer say, one of the things that made me also think that type 1 interferons are important in the pathogens of type 1 is when you look at the candidate genes. So you have nearly 50% of the candidate genes for type 1 diabetes are expressed in human beta cells. And when you start to look at the function of these candidate genes, you find that many of them are involved in the innate immune response, either in the direct recognition of a viral infection, for instance, uh, MPA5, or in the signal transduction of type 1 interferons. So as Jennifer said, you have TIC2, which is a kinase, and for instance, patients or individuals who have a polymorphism that decrease TIC2 expression, they are partially protected. Then you have a phosphatase like PTP and N2, 
that will uh, de phosphorylate STAT1, STAT2, and also inhibit J, J, and K, and several other uh, candidate genes that act on this pathway. And a common motif in these candidate genes is that many of them have the role of down-regulating an innate immune response, which starts to get the feeling that when the beta cell over-respond, for instance, to a viral infection, this is bad news. And we can discuss this at the end. So we grow with curious about the, the impact of interferon alpha on human beta cells. And we decided to do time course multiomics analysis of both a human cell line and of beta H1 and all human islets of Langerhans. So we did in parallel RNA sequencing, uh, a tax sec, which allowed you to see which areas of the chromatin are opening. And at eight and 24 hours, we also added proteomics. And then after this data became available, we did a detailed data integration. One of the things that is important when you are using this type of in vitro model is check whether it is indeed of relevance to the human disease. And the way we approached this was to look at uh, RNA-Sec, which was actually done by colleagues from Jennifer, David Harlan and, and colleagues, where they were able to obtain facts purified beta cells from four patients affected by type 1 diabetes and 12 controls. So we compared the gene expression induced by interferon alpha treatment as compared to the gene expression induced in type 1 by diabetic patients, compared against control. And in red, you have the intensity of the significance. And here, you have the upregulated genes. So you can see that there is a highly significant concordance in the upregulated genes in the human islands treated in vitro with interferon alpha and in the beta cells exposed let's say, in vivo to the type 1 diabetes environment. There is little similarity in the down-regulated genes, probably because the interferon alpha treatment was brief, just 18 hours, which is not enough to induce severe stress. And this is probably specific, because when we compare the gene expression of the human islet treated with interferon alpha with the gene expression of islets from patients, affected by type 2, there is very little correlation. So this seems to be specific for the type 1 situation. So when we started to go a little bit deep into the data, the first thing that struck that, that was really interesting was when we look at the, the attack sec, how fast the chromatin opened. And indeed, there is much more opening of chromatin sites around 4,000 genes at two hours, then at, at uh, 24 hours, where there were around uh, 1,200 genes. And this makes sense because type 1 interferon is an early response uh, protein to a viral infection. So the cell really needs to react fast. And it makes sense that there is this massive early change in chromatin. The other thing that was interesting, and this we observed both with interferon alpha 
and in a collaborative study with, uh, with Lorenzo Pasquale, was that uh, when we look at, let's say, at the transcription factors that were binding to these uh, opening sites, we were surprised to see that there were co-binding of transcription factors. For instance, you had a binding of a transcription factor like uh, neuro, neuro D and, and, and so on. Let's say neuro D, uh, PDX1, Fox, they're all genes involved in beta cell phenotype maintenance. And what we found is that there was co-binding of this beta cell phenotype related transcription factors and the new, let's say, inflammation related transcription factors like uh, STAT1, STAT2, IRF1, which were induced either by interferon alpha or by interferon gamma, suggesting that the fact that the chromatin in some cases is already open and bound to some transcription factors like PDX1 make it easier for transcription factors like STAT1 to also bind. The other thing that was interesting is that in general, when we think about the effects of pro-inflammatory cytokines on human beta cells and red beta cells, we always think on the negative impact that the cytokines may have. But we found that they also, for instance, interferon alpha, induce several proteins that really inhibit the immune system. One of them is PDL1, which is highly up upregulated, and we indeed confirmed that uh, islets from patients affected by type 1 di diabetes who still contain uh, insulin expressing beta cells have a major increase of PDL1 and also of HLA-E, which is an atypical HLA type which inhibits the immune system. So the impression that it gives that the beta cells are trying, at least in the early stages of the disease, to defend themselves from the immune system. And this may be clinically relevant because, for instance, checkpoint inhibitors that are used to treat cancer that block PDL1, in one to 2% of the cases, they may trigger uh, type 1 diabetes mellitus. And it's puzzling because nine to 10% of these patients may express or may suffer also from other autoimmune endocrine diseases, including uh, hypophysitis, which is extremely rare. So one interesting question here is why particularly endocrine glands are susceptible when you block PDL1. Well, we then did the analysis of the pathways involved and you, you find, for instance, regulatory mechanisms like PDL1. Of course, you find interference signaling, ER stress, and so on. And the next step, we mine these data sets using available data sets at the Broad Institute to find drugs that could antagonize the signatures that we were observing. And one of these drugs were inhibitors of JAK1 and TIC2. And as Jennifer mentioned, both JAK1 and TIC2, they are kinases that signal downstream of the type 1 interferon receptor. And uh, there are drugs being developed for other autoimmune diseases that target 
Jacquel and Tiktu, but we were particularly interested in Tiktu because, as I mentioned before, polymorphism Tiktu that decrease its activity have a protective effect against disease. And there are uh, accumulating data to suggest that drug development programs supported by human genetic evidence are more likely to be successful. So we started to test some of the TIC2 inhibitors that are used, for instance, in psoriasis. And we saw that they inhibited interferon alpha-induced HLA class one. They inhibited this chemokine that Jennifer mentioned, CXL10, and here is a complete inhibition. They also inhibit ER stress. And when we did histology for a M MHC class one, you can see under basal condition in a human islet, you don't see M MHC class one very little. When you expose this islet to interferon alpha, there is a clear cut induction, which is inhibited by the two TIC2 inhibitors that we test. And we now are testing this together with Carmela Evans Molina in uh, mouse models of type one, and we are getting some interesting data. So it may be the TIC2 inhibitors, which are already being used, for instance, in psoriasis, may be an interesting drug to consider as an early treatment for type one. So uh, the conclusions or preliminary conclusions at that stage are that human islets obtained from individuals affected by type one diabetes, but not type two diabetes, present a gene signature that is similar to that induced by in vitro exposure to interferon alpha. Interferon alpha promotes early changes in chromatin accessibility that are probably necessary for a rapid response during a viral infection. And the exposure of human beta cells to interferon alpha or to interleukin-1 beta activate several cis regulatory elements, many of them presenting enrichment for islet-specific transcription factor. So these primate regulatory elements may facilitate cell type-specific responses to pro-inflammatory signals, potentially explaining tissue-specific susceptibility in autoimmune diseases. And the last point is that testing uh, perturbagens. Perturbagens are drugs that antagonize the signatures that we have detected, may suggest drugs that can be used or repurposed for the treatment of different uh, autoimmune diseases. This is what I would like to present, and I will now be happy to discuss together with Jennifer. Can I start asking a question to Jennifer? That made yes, absolutely. And, and anyone is welcome. Any one of our participants are welcome to also add a question to the chat, or you can uh, unmute yourself and, and ask a question. Feel free. Jennifer, I was really puzzled by your uh, single cell RNA sac, where you showed this heterogeneity in CXL10 expression. Mm -hmm. uh, well, this is not spatial, but would it be possible for you to see if these cells that express more or less CXL10 have, for instance, higher expression of PDX1 or MAFE, so that there is any correlation with the beta cell function? 
Right. We could certainly do that. And we're getting more experience adding these additional probes uh, to see, you know, where there are alterations, whether increases or decreases in specific transcripts and specifically where they are uh, in the beta cells and islets. So, yeah, the, you know, I'd be interested to know, you know, you know, what, what you you think the most important targets are in the questions. Yeah, we, by, we, we are doing also single cell RNA-seq, but we are using uh, IPS-derived human beta cells or uh, pre-beta cells, I wouldn't call them beta cells. I will take a look if there is this uh, heterogeneity in CXL10. We are trying to, to see, let's say, if the different signatures are related to function of the beta cells, but we have no data as yet. Many years ago, we did a study together with Danny Pipeles, but this was in the country in rat beta cells. And what we observed is that the most active beta cell in the rat were the most sensitive to the leukin one beta. So these were the cells that died first. But I don't know if this is true in human beta cells. And I think with single cell, uh, this can be perhaps clarified. I have a question for you. And as far as, you know, what do you see as things that need to be resolved or barriers to, you know, initiate trials for, say, varicitinib or uh, anti-IFNAR in prevention of type 1 diabetes in people? This is a great question. I think in my view, the main issue is to convince big pharma to give these drugs and to sponsor this type of trial. We have been pushing for TIC2 trials. And one of the issues that we see is that since these drugs are already been tested in other autoimmune disease, there is a resistance to test them in the early stages of type one. So I think the main issue here is to convince our colleagues in pharma that is, is the moment to start testing these drugs in the early stages of type one. How, and, how might, um, how might uh, T1D exchange help in this quest or could they? Well, we have in Europe in Nodia, which is doing something similar to yeah. the trial net. And in Nodia is already doing several clinical trials. So we have, it's directed by Chantal Mathieu, we have the whole infrastructure what we need is the, the drug and the support. So I hope this will eventually come. But I think there is already a trial in Melbourne of uh, Jack inhibition, Jack 1, 2, and they are recruiting. Uh, Tom K is leading it. So it will be very interesting to see what happens. My experience over, you know, certainly in the past year and a half is that you know, I've had, I'm involved with about a dozen uh, clinical trials, preventive and therapeutic for COVID. And certainly there's a lot of investigation on uh, anti-inflammatories because that's where we see, you know, the severe disease and high mortality. And I can tell you, you know, multiple companies, you know, pharma is highly interested because, um, and there's just, you know, let's say we have an ongoing trial sponsored by the NIH 
uh, for uh, prevention of uh, more severe COVID in hospitalized patients, and it's comparing uh, different anti-inflammatory agents. So, you know, you know, approaching the NIH, you know, I, I'm, you know, I've become very familiar with many of these drugs, and after this, you know, wave of COVID and the pandemic uh, abates, you know, that may be a good time to, you know, approach the companies and say, look, you know, you did a great service in studying this. How about we move to other, other diseases? Yeah. And I guess the COVID came with a sense of urgency, right? And so some, <clears throat> somehow we have to, I think, as a community, extend that sense of urgency around type 1 diabetes as well, because it's a lifelong you know, uh, burden to carry. And with um, diagnoses starting earlier, you know, two years old, three years old, that's, that's your entire life that you're carrying this 365 uh, days a year, 24 seven disease. It's, I mean, a lot of changes have made it much more manageable, but it still has to be managed. And so it would be a tremendous win to use some of these resources and partnerships uh, that came out of the COVID crisis to, to sort of attack it there. I wanted to bring up something, you know, I heard a talk by David Harlan, who's a phenomenal scientist. And we talked about this a little bit earlier. His comment was, um, you know, uh, what kind of immune system, you know, doesn't uh, kill all of its targets? And why is there such a patchiness in the, you know, apoptosis events or the, you know, the killing of the beta cells? Why is there, why is it such a patchy disease? And I mean, I guess I would say, you know, when, when, when we think about what you guys are talking about, how, how does that fit with your model? You know, what, why do only, you know, some beta cells change their chromatin accessibility? I mean, why, why is it, uh, how does it fit your model, I guess? Yeah, we're certainly asking that, you know, why is the signature, you know, to start, you know, only in a very small fraction, what's driving the increase and, you know, how does it associate with beta cell function, what halts it eventually, or it prevents every single cell. And, you know, these kind of on off questions are critical and, you know, are key to preventing further disease and, you know, any disease rather. Yeah, well, I think there is a short answer and a long answer. The short answer is we just don't know. The long answer, there are several hypotheses. One of them, as Jennifer says, function. The other is that, the, for instance, the expression of PDL1 and HLAE, which may be protective, is very heterogeneous. So it may be that beta cells that express higher levels of PDL1 are better protected and survive longer. The other possibility is that some of these beta cells under fire they differentiate and express less antigens. So they become less attractive to the immune system. Would you, would you say that they become almost senescent? Sort of to, to talk about, you know, a little bit about Anil Bouchon's uh, hypotheses. I must say that this, this senescence story, we have looked at in the RNA stack of type one diabetic patients and patients with type two. We've we see clear signals of senescence in type two, but much less in type one in, in the actual patient material. So in type one, I don't know uh, how solid is the role of senescence. What I was thinking more is a loss of function. 
once they are under stress. I think senescence needs additional studies. Yeah. Um, there was also some talk, uh, we had the State of the Science three weeks ago, our, our State of the Science number seven, Kevin Harold was on. He was talking about, you know, he, he inferred that, you know, we have to look more closely at the actual innervation of the islets and maybe that even plays a role in their response to inflammation and, and you know, uh, viral impact. This, I, I think there is one question by Connie and for some reason she sent to me all only. Okay. I don't know if you can see it. Yeah. What does she have? She's asking uh, Jack one to inhibition is being explored in type one by diabetes prevention. So what would be the additional benefit of tick two inhibition? I don't think it, there would be an additional benefit. I think we, you cannot block too much these pathways because then you make the cells and the whole patient too sensitive to a viral infection. So for instance, when we are trying to inhibit TIC2, we try to inhibit around 50%. And we have shown that at this level, they remain resistant, or not resistant, but they don't become more sensitive to a Coxsackie infection. So I don't think it would be wise to block both JAK1 and TIC2. Probably you need to go for one or for the other. One advantage of JAK1 is that it may have more impact on the immune system than TIC2. Ellen Thomas gave a lecture that I attended some time uh, ago, and she showed this clearly. But this may be a disadvantage also, because it seems that TIC2 inhibition has less side effects than JAK1-2 inhibition. And one of the problems that, for instance, one of the JAKs is, in, is related to hematopoiesis. So one of the complications of long-term JAK1-2 inhibition that affects JAK3 is anemia, and you don't have this with TIC2 inhibition. I think we'll need to test both separately and see which of them, if any, bring some positive results. Yeah, that's very interesting. I wondered if we wanted to talk a little bit about the chromatome signature during the prodrome. I mean, I know you guys looked right during the um, during the you know infection infectious stage, but can you speculate on the um, access of the or I guess the chromatin signature during the prodrome? You know, as we're leading up to the actual diagnosis, do you think it's it's just continual or is it sort of like an on off thing? are asking all the difficult questions. <laughs> Sorry. We have the short answer and the long answer. The short Perfect. Answer, we don't know. <laughs> the long answer, I think we just know if it is an off, on and off process, as for instance, in multiple sclerosis. Yeah. We just don't know. And I think one of the great limitations in the field is that we cannot image beta cell mass and we cannot image inflammation in vivo. For instance, in multiple sclerosis, you can follow the process by doing M MRI, and you can see when the disease is flaring. In type 1, we just don't know. But this is something I was thinking that, Jennifer, if you are doing serial biopsies, you may be able to follow, particularly if you are doing single-cell RNA-sec. Yeah. 
you know, we could add different analyses certainly to this model. Um, you know, it's a very rich model and reproducible and we've already been able to gain so much data and then, you know, see how it parallels with what we believe is going on in, in humans. Um, I guess I, I'd also interested in asking you guys, um, do you think you can use the pdl one blockers just during the viral course, just in a short burst for those who have genetic susceptibility and avoid the long-term use of immune sort of suppressive drugs? Could it be like, you know, like a one and done? Or do you think it's kind of like you're going to have to monitor, this is totally hypothetical, of course, you know, monitor someone and then and then dose as you go? Just I think the PDL blocker is having the opposite effect. So it would sensitize the beta cells to the immune system. So this is what is observed, unfortunately, when these agents are used in patients with cancer. So some of them develop type one, suggesting that perhaps some of the beta cells of these patients are hanging on thanks to PDL1. So the idea wouldn't be to down-regulate, but to up-regulate. Sorry, that's what I meant. But this would, be, this would need to be targeted. So we would need to have a way to deliver to the beta cells because if by any bad luck, this patient has a early stage tumor, the last thing that we want is to up-regulate pdl one systemic. So it's a delicate balance. What do you think about this role of HLAE? I know there's a lot of talk about HLAG for a while, right? Because it's upregulated up in the placental trophoblast, and then it was found in the beta cells, and you know was you know perhaps thought it maybe it was some kind of protective, added a protective element to beta cells. But um, I hadn't heard that much about HLAE, and and you guys have this uh, uh, HLAE was in your was in your uh, upregulated uh, set. Yeah, this was this was a RNA sequencing and proteomics finding, and then we collaborated with Will Morgan and Sarah Richardson. So they did histology of the pancreas of patients with type one, and we saw uh, they saw an upregulation of HLA class C in beta and alpha cells, but only when there were still beta cells remaining. So there seems to be a crosstalk between the cell types. We are assuming that the function is protective because it has been shown in other circumstances that HLAE inhibits natural killer cells and even CDA cells, but this remains to be proven. Is there anyone else I, in the audience who would like to ask a question? Yeah, I had a question um, regarding the TIC2 inhibitor in both and also the interferon alpha receptor inhibition. So I, I assume it also obliterates the upregulation of PDL1 and HLAE. It also blocks that upregulation, right? Yes. Um, and and you're, beta, you're also already sort of answered a tangential question. I was wondering if rather than targeting the uh, new onset type 1 diabetics, targeting the patients who have developed diabetes in response to pd one blockade, but it makes sense if you, if you do that, you could prevent, you could harden the tumor basically, right? You could prevent the, the, two, uh, trans, the tumor cells from, from dying off. But I, I was wondering if that would be a better risk benefit ratio, um, a, a population where you could try it first rather than um, new onset diabetes. But thinking about it more, it, it might, might be counterproductive. Jennifer, do you want to answer? Uh, uh, you're breaking up a 
bit. Um, yeah, you know, certainly, you know, with uh, administration of PD-1 inhibitors, we see, you know, increased frequency of T1D, but other, other autoimmune diseases, you know, vitiligo mm-hmm. being apparent and, and certainly in, you know, vitiligo, there are ongoing studies with JAK inhibition. So, you know, I haven't really thought about using it as a preventive strategy, but yeah, I think being careful of, you know, untoward consequences or potentially uh, impeding the original function of the PD-1 uh, inhibition, uh, it's a balance. And that's something that could probably be studied, you know, in an animal model first and uh, to see what the overall effects would be. Well, it would be additive for the for the tumor, right? We would further downregulate PDL one, so in that sense, it would right. be positive. But but I'm you could worry that if you have a an immune reaction towards the tumor, that you're preventing the the cell death by by blocking the inflammation. Maybe I also want to. So if you, I don't know this. If you if you treat NOD mice with PDL one blocker, um, do you, what what happens? They, uh, you increase very much the prevalence or the incidence of like okay. one. And there mm-hmm. was there were some studies, this was actually five, ten years ago, where they did the opposite. They overexpressed PDL1 mm-hmm. and there was a protection. So in the road and the mouse model, it's clear that PDL1 is protective and deleting PDL1 mm-hmm. is bad news, accelerates disease. But but you um, uh, uh, talked about in a mouse study, so I'm assuming that's NOD with the TIC2 inhibitor. So it seems that the balance there is, is towards. Yeah, this was not tried. There was no study, to my knowledge, where PDL1 inhibition or PD1 inhibition was combined with TIC2 or JAK1 or even interferon. This would be an interesting experiment to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. to see if this could delay the start of the disease. But to my knowledge, nobody has done it up to now. Okay, here's a great experiment. Just waiting, waiting to be done. Thank you, Christian. That was great. Um, I want to also bring up the fact, um, I know, uh, I'm sure everyone knows that uh, Jeff Bluestone has formed his company, Sonoma uh, Biotherapeutics, and they're um, hoping, right, they've, they've got a whole suite of Tregs and hoping to rebalance the Treg situation in um, type one diabetes. What, what is your thought? What might happen if Tregs, you know, are now rebalanced? Is that going to be, you know, how how can how can that improve the landscape that's already been disrupted at the chromatin level? My first thought would be: Is it enough? You know, there's the immunology is so complex, and we know that Tregs are an important part of the whole uh, process, either for initiation of autoimmunity or you know changing that balance back. But uh, I would because there's just so many uh, immune populations that are altered, and we're just you know still learning about that and you know, the timing and when would be the appropriate time to introduce Tregs. I, mean, I think it's definitely worth, you know, following up and seeing you know, what happens. Um, but that would be the first thing that jumps to my head. Yeah, no, that's an excellent point. The timing, timing is everything. It's funny, I have a collaboration with Dr. Kizitang, who actually 
was at Sugar last week. Yes. And one of the things we one of the things that we are trying to do is to image beta cells. So we identified some surface biomarkers that are beta cell specific or nearly specific. And we are using this to try to image beta cells, but Kizi is using them to help the deliver of the T regulatory cells to the islands. Mm. So the hope is that this would make them more targeted and larger number of T-regs would home to the islands. But I share Jennifer's concern. So I think this will need to be tested and see what happened, but it may not be sufficient. One problem is that this is something that Chantal always say, uh, I think in type one, it will not be a one close fits all this is a multifactorial disease, yeah. uh, which is probably, there are a lot of individual differences. So I think we probably need combination therapies using different drugs at different stages. And it's unlikely that all therapies will work for all patients. Can I just ask, uh, we're getting to the end of our time. This has been a fabulous discussion. I just have a, a question, if anyone, uh, if either of you know, or anyone in the audience, is there an epigenetic signature repository for T1D patients across the, you know, across the board? You know, new new onset, those at risk, one um, autoantibody, two autoantibodies, those have had it for ten years, whatever. You just wonder, like, as you've ta been talking about, once the chromatin opens and genes are turned on, you know, what's that signature? I mean, is it? It, again, is it transitory or is it just like a solid signature, one and done? From our own, that is transitory. So you see, for instance, when the human beta cells are exposed to interferon alpha, after two hours, you have 4,000 areas open. And after 24 hours, it went down to 1,200. I know that Klaus Kessler and colleagues, they are doing a detailed study of beta cells from type 1 diabetic patients. And one of the goals was to identify the epigenetic signature, but it has been very difficult to obtain enough beta cells, but perhaps it would be worthwhile to invite Claus and his colleagues to one of the sessions. Yeah, no, it's, that's a great idea. He, uh, he's attended, uh, I, I believe, one of our state of the sciences, but I would like to uh, definitely have him join us and talk about sort of creating, I think the more mapping that can be done about the, uh, you know, the, the response of the beta cell uh, and the immune signature across the disease during the prodome, once you have it in place, when you can really get, you know, sort of a cartography, a landscape of what's happening that will give a lot more information to, to really understand sort of the, the snapshots that are seen. Yeah, so, all right, he's next. He's, he'll be tapped next <laughs> and you'll be to blame. <laughs> Thank you again for chatting with us. Is there, are there any other questions? If not, I'll say thank you both so very much um, for joining us today. It was just a phenomenal discussion. You're both uh, uh, have done some amazing work in the field and um, I can't wait to see what comes uh, from your laboratories next. I'll be looking for your next uh, paper. Just some great, um, some great work and thank you again. Thank you for having us. It was a pleasure to discuss yeah. with you and the audience. 
members of the audience. Yeah, wonderful discussion. Very thought-provoking and the time. Thank you. Thanks again. Have a great rest of your day, everyone.